0: Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Look at the pretzel. Kind of just get the shape in mind, because when you do eat it, you're not going to have it to look at anymore, and then I might quiz you. Okay? So, uh... Yes? It does kind of look like a heart. Yes, it does kind of look like a heart. So there's a story that says, I don't think it's true story, by the way, like a lot of these, but there's a story that says the pretzel was created by uh, a baker who wanted to demonstrate what the Trinity was, and this is what he came up with. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but not right at this moment. For now, just eat your Trinity-shaped pretzel. So we've been talking about foundations. We've been talking about the foundations of the faith. And the idea is that we really want to kind of focus on those things that we that we know for sure. You know, there's, there's a lot of things in our culture today. We've done a bad job, the church, and I include myself in this. The church has done a bad job of really clarifying what the gospel is and what the foundations are. And it's become wedded with a lot of ideologies that are very cultural. A lot of political positions that couldn't even have been on Jesus' mind. Uh, They could, I suppose, have been on his mind because he's God, but they couldn't have been on anybody else's mind at the time he was around because the political climate was so different. We've done a bad job of that. And so that's one of the reasons we want to go back. As you guys wrestle with things and you wrestle with applications and you wrestle with political ideologies and you wrestle with uh, doctrinal questions, as you wrestle with all these things, we want you to have ground to stand on. Jesus says that if you build your house on a rock, it will survive the storms. And I don't know about you, but the last few years in America felt a little stormy. And I think it would be good for us to make sure we're built on that foundation. So we talked last week uh, about the nature of God. We started with that. Good place to start. And the, what, the big thing we said about the nature of God last week is that God is other, The biggest thing about him is that he's just so different from us. And one of the ways to understand that difference is that he is perfect in all his attributes. He is complete and total. He's not fickle or changeable. So, for example, he is present. But to say that God is present because he's perfect in all his attributes means he's present everywhere all the time. We say that God is powerful. But to say that God is perfect in all his attributes means God is completely powerful. He is power itself. Every attribute of God can actually be used to say, this is what God is. God is just, but he's not only just, he is justice. He's not only loving, says John, but he is love. He is so complete in each of these characteristics that that, that any description of him becomes more solid and three-dimensional than a characteristic of ours could possibly be. And this is in many ways what makes him so other. Because we're all at some point powerless, probably at a much earlier point than we think. We're all at some point unloving. We're all fickle. We're all unjust. We don't do these things perfectly and well. We're only present one place at a time. We think how amazing it is that God is present everywhere all the time. But if that's who you are as God, You know how weird is it to think of the limitation that we have to only be one place at any one time? And you've felt it to be a limitation, to be honest. There's times you've thought, man, <laughs> I feel my powerlessness a lot these days as I get older and I wrestle with certain fatigue residue from COVID. I used to wrestle with that, I used to have unbounded energy. But now I remember what it means to not be God. <laughs> So we've been talking about this as the foundation, and and as we went through these things and we talked about his his omnipotence and his omniscience and his omnipresence, we talked about the fact that he's so good, so much better than anything we've ever seen. We then just briefly touched on one characteristic of him, which is also very other, and that is what we call the Trinity. And we're just going to spend a few minutes tonight talking about what the Trinity is. Now, let me be clear, I left off last week by saying that the Trinity is a mystery, that it can't be completely explained. So if you came tonight thinking that I was going to completely explain it in the shape of a pretzel, um, then you would either have to assume I was lying last week or I'm lying this week. The good news is that's not what I'm doing. I really can't explain to you the Trinity, but what I want you to do is see how it is this otherness. You know, it is one of the best examples of how God is unlike anything in the universe. The reason I don't think we can come up with a really, really good illustration for the pretzel. pretzel. (laughs) We don't need a good illustration for the pretzel. The reason I don't think we can come up with a really good illustration for the Trinity, pardon me, is because there is nothing like it to compare it to. There is nothing in the universe. We've seen nothing that is this kind of three in one that God is. And so I want to clarify that. But what you'll see is the more we clarify what the Trinity is, the more we make certain the mystery that it is. When we try to erase the mystery, then we end up actually with a lot of vagueness about what it is. By clarifying it, you will come face to face with the fact that it does not fit anything you've seen in the universe. And that's okay. Okay. Because that is part of who God is. Uh, This is our uh, statement of faith about the Trinity. It's good as far as it goes. It says this. It says there is but one God, infinite in power, wisdom, justice, goodness, and love. These are the things we talked about last week. There's one God and he is infinite. What makes him other is his eternal nature of these. It doesn't come and go. It doesn't ebb and flow. He is always and forever and always has been and always will be all powerful, all wise, all just, all good, and all loving. And he's just one. The creator of the universe. Oddly, and it was an oversight on my part, we didn't talk about this as part of the nature of God last week. We should have. Because another reason that that he is other is that we're all creative. God has made human beings creative. We're creative in different ways, but we're all creative. When we have to, we we run across situations every day that we've never seen before and we have to create a solution to it. But in creating those solutions, we do the same thing that people who create art or poetry or buildings or material things that they do, and that is we create from what we have available. Any problem we solve, we use the materials we've got, mentally, emotionally, whatever it is. Any physical thing we create, we use the materials we've got. That is a limit of our creative ability still means we can do an awful lot because there's a lot to work with. But God is other. He's the perfect creator, and that means he can create with no materials. (laughs) He can create from nothing. So it fits the whole sort of picture of God being, that, that we are made in the image of God. So all these things that we love and are, we can see in God. But God is so different from us in the degree and in the infinite nature of these characteristics. So it says here, there's but one God, infinite in power, wisdom, justice, goodness, and love, the creator of the universe. And then it says this, eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each of whom possesses all the attributes of the deity. means they're co-equal, they're co-eternal. They're all worthy of the same worship and obedience. It's not like you should worship the Holy Spirit more than Jesus or Jesus more than the Holy Spirit or the Father. They're they're all God. They are all He, (laughs) and He is God. They're co-equal, they're co-eternal, they're worthy of the same worship and the same obedience. Each of these persons possesses all the attributes of the deity and they possess characteristics of distinct personhood or personalities, it says here. So that's a lot of big words. Gives you a little bit of a sense. Let's, let's move forward a little bit. Before we, before we try to break down what that means and what it, to understand what the Trinity is as much as we can, there's a question that often comes up, and these days has come up by people who don't like, well, I don't, I don't want to disparage the motivations, for some people, it's because they don't like the mystery, and they don't like the tension, and they don't like something that exists in Christianity, which they cannot nail down in a nice box, and so one of the things people will say is, Scripture doesn't even talk about the Trinity, that the Trinity is not scriptural. So I want to pose that question, is it scriptural? Well, the short answer is yes. We're going to talk about it more, but the short answer is yes, it is scriptural. It comes from scripture. It does not come from the mind of anyone. Think about this seriously. If you were going to create a religious doctrine, would you create one that sounds illogical? Would you create one that on the face of it causes people to go, that's hard to accept? Or would you try to create a God that is easy to access? Of course, this was not made up by the early church. They, they wrestled with this. Many of them would have much rather this had not been what they saw in scripture and heard from the apostles. But the reason people question whether it's in scripture is because the word Trinity is not in scripture. Now, why is the word Trinity not in scripture? Because no language ever had a need for the word before now. Because Trinity doesn't exist in any form in the universe except in God, and that wasn't fully revealed until the gospel. In the gospel, God begins to reveal to us this trinitarian nature. Before that, there was no need for the word, so nobody had a word. So in scripture, it doesn't ever say God is trinity, it simply says some things about God which can only be articulated and explained, and they needed a word to articulate and explain it, and they chose the word which is essentially triunity, 3 three-in-one trinity. The concept of a triune God is throughout Scripture. I think you can find it in the Old Testament even. There's there's some places people point to. There's an interesting thing that happens in Genesis without going into huge detail. There's, you may have heard, you know, on, on, a, on a sort of minor note, there's this point where God uh, looks at the world and says, Let us create man in our image. In the image of God, let us create them. And the question is: who is with God? <laughs> Who is this us referring to? And some people could argue, well, it's the heavenly beings because we know they were around at this time. It doesn't tell us when they were created, by the way, but we know they were there. But that's weird because we're not created in their image. We're created in God's image. Some people say it's a royal we. Well, that could be, but that isn't a Hebrew thing. So that would be odd. We don't really know for sure. One possibility is God is a, is a we in one. <laughs> He's a we and a he. That, don't quote me on that. That's a, that's a strange phrase. But it gets weirder than that. There's a moment in Exodus where it says, the Lord our God is one. It's one of those clear statements about the fact that God is only one God. Except the weird thing is the word it uses for God is plural. <laughs> it's a little bit like saying, the Lord our gods is one. Peculiar. Is it an error? Maybe, but it's an error that scribes left. It's an error that got translated over and over and over and over for some reason. Do these prove the trinities in the Old Testament? They don't prove it. And in fact, we can't because nobody in the New Testament points back to a specific verse and says, this is about the trinity. They do very helpfully do that about the gospel. They'll point back and say, this was a picture of Jesus. This was a picture of this. They don't do that about the trinity. So any speculation we make is speculation. I think it's reasonable and I think it's plausible. But we don't necessarily have to die on this hill because the New Testament is abundantly clear that the revelation that we get. There are new things we learn in the New Testament. The name of the Messiah is a simple new thing we learn. The the idea of the incarnation, God becoming man is a thing we learn. But once you introduce the idea of God, the Son praying to God, the father, suddenly there's another new idea. And the same God, the Son, who prays to God, the Father, insists that there's only one God. And you have to somehow reconcile those two things. So this concept, this need, and the Holy Spirit gets brought in as well. Jesus talks about, I'm going to leave and I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. So you have these three persons that are referenced. And yet the Holy Spirit, God, the Father, and Jesus are all referred to as God and all say without any question throughout scripture that there is only one God. So this is the dilemma. This is the, this is the picture that the early church had that they received from the apostles' teaching, that they received from scripture, that they received from eyewitnesses to Jesus' teachings that Paul deals with. They all have this point where they believe that what God says to them is that God is one God and only one God, and there is only one God and then says that Jesus is God, and the Father is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and they are not the same person. And so the early believers said, yeah, we don't get it, but that's what it says. We need a name for it. <laughs> Let's call it three in one. Trinity. The, the, the word Trinity is born out of this continuing need to be able to articulate one of the deep mysteries of the gospel. So they created a word for it because it's there. In fact, the other thing is that certain aspects of the gospel are impossible to understand without this truth. You, you just can't even get there. We've already mentioned the, the son prays to the father. Well, how does that work? And yet the son claims he is God. And he claims the father is God. <laughs> how do you how do you go? Where do you go? Just to give you some examples of this being in the New Testament, here it comes up, kind of this triune nature of God. At Jesus' baptism, we see it. When Jesus is baptized, we hear the voice of the Father commending the Son as God, and it says the Spirit takes the form, according to Luke, the physical form of a dove and lands on Jesus. I think, why do that? Because otherwise, you would not know that the Spirit was landing on Jesus because he's invisible. (laughs) But why? Why give us this demonstration of this triune nature of God? Why confuse the poor Hebrews who have been taught over and over and over, there's only one God, by referencing three persons at this moment who all seem to be God? In 1 Peter, Peter talks about salvation. He says that, that salvation includes us being chosen by the Father, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. These three persons are all given these distinct roles all in salvation. In sanctification, another part of salvation, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul talks about the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In other words, all of those point back to what? The grace and love of God. The relationship and communion with God is our sanctification, but it describes it in three different persons. Christian growth, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, also, talks about sanctification, I believe, and says something very similar. It says we're chosen by the Father, loved by the Lord, sanctified by the Spirit. We are told in the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew that we are supposed to go, and as we see people come to the Lord, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are bringing people into an understanding that God is one God. And yet at the very moment that we bring them into the understanding that God is one God, we say, I'm going to baptize you in the name of three persons. But they're all just that one God. You know, if Jesus just wanted to avoid confusion, he could have not made this such a big deal. Really? Why, Why put this as part of the beginning of a Christian's life as a Christian? This is what they hear when they begin to grow in the baptism. Paul prays in Ephesians three fourteen through 21, one of my favorite prayers, and he references it there too. He says, I pray that you will be strengthened by the spirit, that you will know the love of Christ and that you will be filled with the fullness of God. And at that moment, I think he means God, the father. So we have all these references through the new Testament to this, this triune picture. So yes, it's scriptural. And the early church clearly believed in it from very early. In fact, I think it's what they understood Jesus and the apostles to be teaching from the beginning. I don't think this developed as a new thought, it's what they thought all along. But we see it defined in three key creeds. Now, I I have to say very quickly, and I won't go into detail about this because this is a different teaching, but there's a lot of confusion about the councils that the early church had and the creeds that they developed. And I just wanna say very quickly, that if you've read Dan Brown, for example, in The Da Vinci Code, or any of the sort of Gnostic... There, there's a tradition of Gnosticism that goes back almost as far as the Christian church, and the Gnostics have been in competition with Christianity. And the Gnostics justify it by slandering the early church and have done it for years and years. And, and whether it's the you know, books about the Knights Templar or Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, there is this idea out there That what the councils were, were powerful people getting together to tell the populace that what they thought was wrong and change the doctrine to something that gave them more power. So when you come to something like the Nicene Creed, where they do talk about the Trinity, some people say what happened is that there were people didn't believe in the Trinity and they didn't believe Jesus was God. And so these powerful people came along and they said, we are going to make a new doctrine that will clarify this and then change what everybody thought. None of that, none of that bears any relationship to the reality of history at all, not even close. When you're Dan Brown, you get to write it as fiction, and then when people complain, you get to say, it's just fiction. But a lot of people took it and ran with it. But again, he was borrowing from a long Gnostic tradition that occurred before him anyway. What actually happened, for example, at the Nicene Council, and this is 325 AD, and I don't know if you can, if you understand how significant it is that it's within 200 years of the death of the last apostle. Likely it's within 200 years of the death of John, and to have something that close, there's just, that things in history, I know they feel like they do, but they don't change that fast. And when you have a document or you have a a reference that's 200 years close to the original, you have beat out every ancient document study that exists. This is absurdly close. And at 325, what happened was not that that the the people all didn't believe certain things, and so these powerful people had a council to change it. What happened was that as a whole, the church was all moving along under the understanding that Jesus was God. That he had been god forever and a man came along a man named arian and arian said actually i think we got it wrong i think jesus is god he actually didn't argue jesus wasn't god he said i think jesus is god but i think he's god by virtue of being created first by god now you can argue if that makes logical sense i would argue it doesn't but nonetheless it's important to understand his position was not that jesus wasn't god His position was that Jesus became God by being created first and specially over everybody else. So he was God, but he doesn't have all the attributes of God we just discussed because he's not eternal. Well, what happened is he started preaching this. And so people in the church said, you know, we only know what the apostle said. We don't all have a copy of the New Testament in our Gideon hotel or Gideon hotel. Gideon Bible in our hotel. I like the Gideon Hotel. I'm going to start one. We, we don't all have that. We just know from our pastors and our teachers what the apostles taught, what the letters say, is Arian right or not. And so the council got together and said, you know, we've never made, we, we need to have some creeds. We need to have some definite statements so that people will know far and wide, this is what the apostles taught. And so they gathered together and they looked at it and they said, the apostles did not teach that Jesus was created. They taught that he was God forever. But once they said that, then they had to wrestle with the fact that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all God forever. And so they, they, they developed, they wrote out an articulation of what the whole church believed with a few outliers. Dan Brown, just an example of how weird this gets. Dan Brown says in the Da Vinci Code, and again, it's fiction, he can say whatever he wants. But he says in the Da Vinci Code that at the Nicene Council, they had a vote They were voting on whether Jesus was God and that it was a really close vote, only separated by two votes. Now, I don't know if he just read the history wrong and was mistaken, but I doubt it. Because the reality is, number one, they didn't vote on anything. They all agreed. (laughs) They weren't voting on whether Jesus was God or whether they were going to make him God. They were discussing what the articulation should look like. And it is true that as the 316 of them that were gathered there together wrote down on paper what they believed, there were a few that said, we don't think this is correct. And if you want to consider that a vote, that's fine. Let's call it a vote. And this is how close it was. It wasn't separated by two. It was that the minority was comprised of two. 314 to two. Now, I don't know in what world that's a close vote, except Dan Brown's. it's not a vote 316 people got together 314 said this is the way it is two of them said not I bet you can guess who one of those two was uh Arian (laughs) his representative if he wasn't there we're not sure the point is these creeds show what the early church believed They don't show what the power structure wanted to believe. I just want to be clear about that. And the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the Athanasian Creed all talk about the Trinity in this way. That there is one God comprised of three persons. And they get more clear as they go. And why is that? Well, because the Nicene Council wasn't really there to talk about the Trinity. They were there to talk about whether Jesus was God or was a created being. But they did talk about the Trinity because you can only explain Jesus being God forever and acknowledge the Trinity. But there was still a little bit of a lack of clarity. So in the Apostles' Creed, they made it more clear. And then in the Athanasian Creed, which we're not even sure where that came from, that's not a council. So it may have just been somebody who wrote it, but it it says the same thing more clearly. They don't disagree with each other, but they just get more specific. So all that is just to say that the early church affirmed the divinity and personhood of each of the members of the Trinity. They affirmed the idea that Jesus was God The Holy Spirit was God, the Father was God, and there's only one God. There is a nice picture that comes going back pretty far in the church, and I like it because it it really clarifies the mystery. Sometimes when I show this to people, they say, wait, now I, I thought I understood the Trinity. Now I realize I don't, and that's correct. Here's the picture. So this is like a chart. And the way to think of this is, this is just a graph of the way the early church understood the teachings of scripture. Without calling it Trinity, without coming up with the doctrine, they simply said, what does the, uh, what did the apostles and what did Jesus, what do they teach us about the nature of God? And this is what they said. Number one, the father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the son. The son is not the father. The son is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the father. The father is not the son. They're all distinct. You see that? When it says that the son prayed to the father, he wasn't talking to himself in that sense, as we would think of that. But then it says the father is God, the son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. So this is what they said, scripture said. We don't know what to call it. We ended up calling it the Trinity, but this was the chart. This was the concept they're dealing with. The father's not the Holy Spirit, not the son, they're not each other, but they're each God. And then when you add to that, what was a given, what was very, very clear to every Hebrew, to every Jew, to every early church Jewish member, and the early church was all Jews at the beginning, was very clear to all of them is that this does not change the fact that there's only one God. So the Father is that one God, the Son is that same God, the Holy Spirit is that same God, but the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not the Father. And you look at that and you say, wait, but that makes, that's impossible. And I say, now you understand the Trinity. It is impossible. It mirrors nothing in our existence. It is part of the beautiful mystery and otherness of who God is. So let's break it down just a little bit. There is one God and only one. Period. But he exists in three persons. But these three persons are equal and eternal. They are worthy of equal praise and worship, which only God gets. They are distinct, yet they act in unity. Now, here's an interesting thing, I think. This is one of the best things that that I understand about the Trinity. Kind of brings some of this together for me. It may or may not for you. Think about the fact that we've said that every characteristic that God has becomes complete and perfect and fleshed out in a way that we only approximate. And now think about the idea of unity. When we are with other people in a church or in a group and we want to have unity, we reach for this oneness, right? God says that a husband and wife become one. But we understand that's a metaphor, right? Let's just be clear. I, I, I look at lots of husband and wives and they're clearly not, they're, they're two people. But we understand it's a metaphor for unity, right? I mean, there may be something more spiritual there, but it doesn't change the fact that there's, there's something deeper here. But it's, but it's a unity. And in a church, we want to have unity. We want to function as one. But for us, it's that same approximation. It's that same attempt for unity, but it's never complete. But what if God was distinct persons, but was united? And for him, everything is perfect. Every attribute that he is becomes complete. So for him to be united means to literally be one. I think that's part of how this works. It's because of the fullness of the unity, the fullness of this attribute of God. It's also encouraging, though, to realize that when God calls us to unity, he's not calling us to something that he doesn't understand. Do you see that? There's so many things about what God calls us to as a community that make more sense when we recognize that God himself is a community of perfect unity and oneness. And all of this constitutes the one true God of the Bible, the same God that's in the Old and the New Testament, the same God. I don't know how you think about scripture. And I know that one of the ways we ease the tensions in our life, the tension between what scripture says and what we want it to say is by saying that the God of the old Testament, and God of the new Testament is a different God. I, I want you to really understand the ramifications of saying that it means either you believe there's more than one God or you believe that God changed. But if God changed, then the redemption that Jesus brings is worthless because it could change tomorrow. He might decide he doesn't love you anymore (laughs) because that's what we do. The God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament. And this Trinitarian nature has been there for eternity. It just wasn't revealed to us until the gospel. So one of the ways to understand the Trinity is to look at the parameters of the boundaries. See, it's really kind of hard to say what is it because we've never seen it before, but we can say what it isn't. And as you begin to tick off the things that can't be, it helps you understand, again, the mystery of what it is. So the first thing is that God is three distinct persons, not just God in three different roles in different eras. It's, what, it's not like God the Father became God the Son when he came to earth and then became God the Holy Spirit when the Son left. There are those who have said that. That is not what Scripture teaches. The Son spoke to the Father when he walked on the earth. The Son uh, was filled with the Holy Spirit when he walked on the earth that it's not just three different modes. This is called modalism. It's a heresy that says that all the Trinity really means is that somebody has three different roles. This is the problem with the water analogy. Steam, water, and ice are not all at the same time. Now, I just read somebody told me that in a really unique circumstance, water can be steam, water, and ice all at once. I don't know if I believe that. I guess if that's true, there's an example, but in my experience, that's never been true. But I don't know, maybe there's a weird world where it is. But it's also the problem with the analogy that says, I'm a father, a son, and a husband. No, that isn't three distinct persons. That's just me in three different roles. And that is not what the Trinity teaches. Number two, God is one God, not three independent beings. This is the other side. If you slide too far the other way, you get to polytheism. Muslims don't like Christianity. One of the reasons they don't is they believe that we worship multiple gods. And I understand why they would be confused about that. We ourselves can't quite grasp this. But to be fair, they have to accept that what we are describing is not what they are describing. We do not believe in multiple gods. We believe in one god who's three persons. And they say, that makes no sense. And we can say, yeah, you might be right. But it is what it is. But it's not three gods. Believing in three independent beings is, is polytheism or tritheism. It totally eradicates the gospel. It makes no sense. If you bring that into the gospel, you're suddenly left with nothing. You're left with uh, Herculean uh, and, and Balder Norse mythology. That's what you're left with. Jesus is fully God from eternity and is not the first and greatest creation of God the Father. Th- this is what Arianism argued the opposite of, that he was, in fact, just a creation. And that in itself leads us to this understanding of the Trinity, that each of the three persons is fully God. It also does not make sense to say that what happens in the Trinity is that each is one-third. Right? The Father's a part of God, the Son's a part of God, the Spirit's a part of God. That's not unusual, we see that every day, <laughs> right? Everything comes in parts. This is the difficulty with the egg analogy, correct? Because you're saying the shell, the white, and the yolk are like the Trinity? No, that's just three parts. You can make three parts out of anything, can't you? I mean, except an atom, I suppose. Except a real atom, pure atom. The point is, these are the parameters. Each person of the Trinity is fully God. Each person of the Trinity is distinct in person, and each person and there is only one God and that is what the Trinity means. So now we come to Tony Evans. So Tony Evans is not a pretzel. Let me be clear. Tony Evans likes pretzels, however. Tony Evans is a fantastic preacher, one of the best people I've ever heard speak. In fact, just to give you an example, uh, I went to his church. It's a mammoth sized church, at least it was when I went. A couple decades ago, mammoth size church, thousands and thousands so big that you, it's one of those places you have to park um, like miles away. And then you ride a bus to the parking lot and they have ushers in the parking lot about every 20 feet. So you don't get lost on the way to the building and then you get in the building and you have ushers there. I mean, it's huge and it takes it's about a 45 minute process to park and get to the bu- get into the building. It's, it's just that big and that many people. And so you're in there, and you're just surrounded. It's just this huge auditorium of a church. And by the way, I was reading a lot of church growth books at the time, and they did everything wrong. And yet somehow, here they were. Uh, and one of the things they did wrong is I, was, I felt like there were, there were others, no doubt. It's a, it's a predominantly black church. I got to experience what it felt like to be in the minority. They, they made the visitors stand up. And you might think you can't do that in a church that large, but the ushers were at every aisle, and they would see that you were new, and they would point you out. It was the worst experience of my introverted life. But they made me stand up, and I was this only white guy in this predominantly black. And but but God was like, "Now you know how they feel sometimes." And I thought, "Fair enough, fair enough." But that's not my story. My story is this: the other thing they did wrong is they had a solid hour of worship, then they did announcements. Then then Tony Evans would speak for an hour plus. Okay? That's not supposed to work at all. But the truth is, I could have listened to him for another hour. And you know what he talked about the day I was there? Tithing. That is the worst thing to preach on. No one wants to hear that. And I was riveted. I was so engrossed that hour plus flew by. And I remember thinking, that's impressive. So he's a good preacher good teacher. He did a lot of good expository. It it wasn't just, you know, Rasmus Taz. He's a good guy. He says the pretzel is the best analogy for the Trinity. And he says for this reason. You see these three holes? They're essential to the pretzel. Okay? They're all part of the pretzel. But if you take one of those holes away, he says, that's not a pretzel anymore. It's something else. Right? Okay. That might make a point. There's a couple of issues with this, though. Let me just point out in case you're confused. This is also not God. And, and, and here's, here's why, all right? Just to be clear about the issue. If you've been paying attention, this is a little bit more developed, but it's still just partialism. He's still saying that each of this trinity is just a whole, but there's a bigger problem with that. If you're going to do that, there's four parts to a pretzel. Because there's the pretzel, <laughs> right? I mean, you've got three holes and you've got the bread. Now we've got a quadrinity. So there's a little bit of an issue here with this. I understand what he's saying. And he's saying that if you remove it, they're they're indispensable. And that's true. He's taken partialism a little bit step further and said that the Trinity is partialism, but each part is indispensable. But That's not true. That's the church. Which is an approximation of the unity of God. But God is not three separate parts. See, Jesus is every hole and every part of this pretzel bread. The Holy Spirit is every hole and every part of this pretzel bread. And the Holy Spirit is every hole and every part of this pretzel bread. And I should include the salt. Not just for the Holy Spirit, for all of them. As soon as you try to break it down and say, this part of this is one of the members of the Trinity, you've already lost the point. I love Tony Evans, but God is not a pretzel. And yes, I'm 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 being silly cuz he clearly knows God is not a pretzel. Why does it matter? Here's the real question though. If the Trinity is confusing, and it is, and I wouldn't be surprised if out there there are some people who have turned away from Christianity because the Trinity seems irrational. I wouldn't be surprised. If there are some people who have been uh, uh, Muslims do it all the time. One of their sticking points is the Trinity. So it's a good question to ask, does it matter? I mean, can't someone come to a saving grace through Christ and let's just not mess with the Trinity? Why is this in our foundations, right? We're trying to stick to the stuff that is really foundational. And on the one hand, I'll say, yes, you can come to saving grace through Christ without understanding the Trinity at all. In fact, you can come to saving grace through Christ and understand almost nothing. Because what saves us is Christ, not how well we understand it. What saves us is Christ, not even the amount of how clear our faith is. Let's be honest. Most of us got saved and realized today that we knew very little. But there's a difference between saying you can come to salvation because Christ has saved you without understanding anything and say that it is profitable for a Christian to not understand anything. (laughs) The point is that the Trinity is wedded to the gospel. The only way to embrace the gospel and not embrace the Trinity is simply to be ignorant of the Trinity. But you can't deny the Trinity and truly understand the gospel. You can still be saved, but you can't really understand it. You're going to miss some of the beauty and mystery of it. The Trinity is wedded to the gospel in significant ways. You cannot even begin to grasp that Jesus is fully God and fully man and talks to the Father and has a plan from the beginning and that the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian if you don't accept the nature of the Trinity. They're all part of the package. So why does it matter though? Even having said that, why does it matter? Why, why should we even talk about it? Number one, because Christianity, first and foremost, isn't about getting your doctrines right, your creeds right, your ethics right. It's about knowing God. And part of the amazing otherness of God is this tri-unity, is this three-in-one. And if we dispense with that, we're missing a really important thing about who God is. It's like you married your spouse and then discovered that your spouse was, I, I can't even think of a good example off the top of my head, but something really significant about who your spouse is, and you just decided to ignore it. Uh, Well, like I just decided to pretend my wife was not an amputee. I guess I could do that and I could still love her. But am I loving her? (laughs) Am I embracing her for who she is? And and I'm going to miss a whole lot about who she is and why she is the way she is. It's not everything to who she is. It's not even close. But it is something. It's like this with God. We can deny the Trinity if you want, but you are missing out on some of the beauty and mystery and majesty, amazing otherness of who God is if you refuse to let that tension be what that tension is. Number two, as one pastor says, it helps us understand what God was doing for all eternity. (laughs) I think the idea of God being in a relationship, being a relationship for all eternity really eases a lot of the tension we have on that side of, well, what did God do for all eternity? And if he created us to love us, why did he live in misery for eternity before he did that? Well, he didn't. The reality is he didn't need to create us for him to love us. He loved, he already knew love, and he knew intimacy and he knew communication of a perfect kind. But it goes further than that because we were created in his image and we are created with this desire for relationship and communication. We want to be able to connect with people. We want to have relationship. Communication, we are bad at it, right? This is one of the greatest frustrations in my personal life. I have a bugaboo about this. I'm a little pathological, so I'm not saying you all have to feel this way. But it really wears on me that we have such a huge capacity for communication. No other being, no other creature on the earth, no other animal has the capacity for communication we have. Coco the gorilla could not talk about talking. Very basic thing we do all the time. I'm doing it right now. No animal communicates like we communicate. We have this incredible capacity for communication, but we seem to have an equally big capacity for misunderstanding each other, (laughs) for choosing not to listen. We're so bad at it. But our desire for it, I think, comes from the fact that God was in communication with himself, the persons of the Trinity for eternity. Perfect connection, communication and relationship. And it helps understand why this is part of who we are, why it's so important. This isn't something God discovered when he created us. It's so important we don't recognize that. He didn't discover the value of relationship and love. If that was the case, that's not perfect love. It's something he learned. But he knew it all along because it's part of who he is. Schaefer, Francis Schaefer makes this point really well. If you've never read Francis Schaefer, I recommend you give him a shot. There's two there's really three, but two of the two of the authors that have probably had the most impact on my Christian life are C.S. Lewis, other than scripture, are C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer. And they're both a little heady. But, but Francis is pretty accessible. He uses a lot of illustrations. I don't think a pretzel's in there ever. But he uses a lot of illustrations and analogies. And the interesting thing is he never writes about the Trinity, but if you read all his works, you suddenly realize the Trinity is super important to him. Number three, it reminds us of the otherness of God and our own limitations to contain the fullness of God in our minds. It's so important we remember that God is not made in our image. We are made in God's image. But as people, it is so easy to wanna create God in our image. We wanna bring him down to a a picture and a box and a a size that we can manage. And when there's tension about who he is that doesn't fit our worldview, we want to crimp that. And the Trinity doesn't let us. If we refuse to give up on the Trinity, it will help us remember the blessing that God is bigger than our brains. The, the, the fact is that some of us get uncomfortable when we can't rationally figure out God. But I've got to tell you the truth. I don't know when, I, I was kind of that way, I like figuring stuff out. But there was a uh, switch that flipped at some point in my life, decades ago. Where, where now, when I run across something that is very foreign about God, that is not what I thought he was, I'm actually really excited about it. Because it reminds me that, oh, yeah, I didn't just create this. I didn't just make this up in my head because I never would have made up the Trinity. It doesn't make any sense. It's really good. It's important. And this goes a little bit further. It reminds us of the importance in general of allowing tension in Scripture. I I think this is a, a problem that the current church has. And there aren't a lot of people, honestly, really pushing against this. So let me be one of those who does. If you read scripture only to affirm your own worldview, and you find that right now you have so resolved everything in the pages, you're so good at it, that you have resolved all the tension in scripture, may I suggest to you that you have just lost the greatest value that scripture has for you. Because the greatest value scripture has for you is to tell you things that you would never know otherwise is to reveal to you truths that conflict with the worldview that you bring to it. If you always make scripture fit your worldview, if the way you respond to every tension is to squeeze it until it fits into the worldview you already have, then what is the benefit of this ancient wisdom from God if all you do with it is squeeze it till it fits what you already knew to begin with? There are too many Christians whose perspective on scripture mirrors exactly the worldview they had before they came to scripture. And that seems unlikely to be positive. I'm not saying scripture should always make you uncomfortable. The truth is, there are many times that when you let scripture challenge your worldview, you will find that it, you will find that it is a lot more encouraging than your own worldview. That in fact, God is better than you thought in your worldview. That's what I've discovered. But even if it makes you uncomfortable, that's good. Let it do that. Let things like the Trinity remind you that tension doesn't need to be resolved. It needs to be embraced, it needs to be loved. Those of you in focus groups who've ever done a study that I've created, and I think you've all done it one time, at least one of the studies I've created, there's a bunch. I just provide them as resources. Our leaders don't have to use them. You may not know, those are called tension hermeneutics. I think I invented that term, but if somebody out there says, no, you stole it, I, okay, you can have it back. But, 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 I, but I, I, at least in my head, created the term tension hermeneutics because I learned that the way I learn most about scripture is when I embrace the tension between it and my experience rather than dismissing either my experience or the scripture. And Trinity helps. The, the Trinity helps us do that. And finally, as I mentioned, it is inextricably tied to the gospel. It just is. We, we could go through that. And when we get to the gospel, which of course is going to be in our foundation series, we'll reference back a little bit. But you cannot understand the gospel anything other than a very shallow manner if you dismiss the Trinity along the way. You can be saved, but you cannot grasp the beauty of on the amazing nature of our God. Once you learn to live in the tension that is God, the mystery that is God, what you'll begin to learn along the way is that there is such beauty in his inexplicability. Some of us for too long have just thought the phrase God works in mysterious ways was simply a balm for when we didn't understand what God was doing. Now, the reality is, if God didn't work in mysterious ways, he never would have decided that the plan he wanted to create the universe under Was that he would create a people, give them free will to despise him, let them despise him, and then send his own son to die in their place to retrieve them back, knowing that some of them still would continue to despise him? That's mysterious. It's a good thing God works in mysterious ways. The gospel is beautiful and unimaginable and crazy and strange and bizarre and irrational. And mysterious, and awesome. I wish I could say awful and have it mean what it used to mean, which means full of awe. Because awesome is only partly awe. But if I said awful, you'd be confused. So when I say awesome, you hear full of awe. Awesome. That's what it is. It's tied to the gospel. Francis Schaeffer says this. I mentioned it before. He says this: the Holy Spirit indwelling the individual Christian is not only the is not only the agent of Christ, but he's also the agent of the Father. Consequently, when I accept Christ as my Savior, my guilt is gone. I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and I am in communication with the Father and the Son, as well as the Holy Spirit, the entire Trinity. Thus, now in the present life, if I am justified, I am in a personal relationship with each of the members of the Trinity. God the Father is my Father. I am in union with the Son, and I am indwelt by the Holy Spirit. This is not just meant to be doctrine. It is what I have now. There's something in the way he says that that shows he is embracing a majesty that is, just, that is too much for him. It's not a doctrine. It's the reality of his life. And that's why we do communion, to remember the beauty and majesty of the gospel. So without further ado, let's sing some more worship, and let's take communion. There are uh, cups in the back. Which have- most churches believe in the value of small groups, but a focus church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens, that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at PastorMac, M-A-C underscore at Mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope there's been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.